0: Today, guys, we have a wonderful guest with us. His name is Rakeem Coleman. He is a third grade teacher with lived experience with mental health challenges and is looking forward to raising more awareness by sharing his, his story and being transparent parent. So with that said, we now welcome Rakeem Coleman.
1: Hello, everybody. <laughs> How you guys doing today? first of all, I want to say thank you uh, to Cleone for inviting me on her podcast. I really appreciate it. And I hope that this message or this discussion will encourage a lot of Black men to open up about the mental issues that they may have and and the stigma that is associated with men' mental health.
0: Amazing. I love it. I love it. I love it. So first of all, we're going to ask, so tell us a bit more about your profession. When did you get started and why did you become a teacher?
1: Um, I actually got started when I was around 22. And how I ended up teaching was I didn't want to teach at first. And <laughs> I was working in the school's cafeteria. <laughs> I'm being honest. I didn't want to teach at first. Don't no worry. And awesome. I was working in the school. <laughs> i didn't want to teach at first but it's something that after working with kids for so many years and really never doing anything with it you know the principal of the school i was working for approached me he said how have you ever considered being a teacher and i was like a teacher no and (laughs) i ended up working with a really group really good group of second graders and i just fell in love with the profession ever since
0: oh that's awesome it's really good to know that we have men of color that are entering into the field because our children need to see themselves, um, you know, in in the fields of authority so that they can see what's actually possible. And yeah, good on you for actually taking up the the mantle to teach and to inspire a nation. You never know exactly who you're going to inspire next. So that's awesome. I appreciate that. Thank you. No problem. So where exactly are you from?
1: I'm actually from Philadelphia. Okay. Pennsylvania.
0: Pennsylvania. Cool. Cool. And so we're going to go right into the interview based on that. What is your mental health diagnosis and when were you diagnosed?
1: Well, to keep it medically correct, I would say I was diagnosed with bipolar schizoaffective disorder. Uh-huh. And I was diagnosed sometime in the middle of 20,
0: 2018. Okay. Wow. So it's pretty recent then. Yes. Okay. And so tell us more about what bipolar schizo- schizoaffective disorder is for you. What does that look like?
1: Um, for me, it looks more like one, I would say it's mainly mine is a lot of depression. Mine's, okay. comes in, mines came in the form of a lot of depression. Mm-hmm. And there was moments where if I wasn't depressed, then I was extremely manic. And mm-hmm. for those that really don't or unfamiliar with manic, it just means that you're overly happy to the point where you just don't think you make reckless choices. Right. And those choices that you make in, in that manic episode affects you down the line. Mm -hmm. And, you know, something that a lot of people really don't know is that manic and depression actually are two sides of the same coin. Hmm. You know, when you manic, you may go out here and buy a $25,000 car, but you can't afford the $25,000 car. Mm -hmm. And when you come down off the the manic high, you're depressed because now you have a $25,000 debt.
0: Yes, I get you. I totally get you because I have lived experience with bipolar. So that whole analogy of the cars, I can definitely identify because I was supposed to buy a Mercedes Benz when I was manic. <laughs>
1: right. Cause you kept talking, you, you kind of rationalize with yourself when you're in a manic phase. You'd like, well, you only live once, but yeah, now you're stuck with $25,000 living once. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, then, and another big thing that came with mine was a lot of drug and alcohol use.
0: Okay. So yours is more like concurrent disorder then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So tell us, what is your mental health story of resilience? How what did, what exactly did you go through and how did you bounce forward? Well, I'll start with what I went through that kind of
1: led to the mental health, you know, the mental health struggles. When I was a kid, you know, My mom and dad were unable to take care of me because of my mom, you know, started using drugs and my dad was nowhere to be found. You know, he was there, but he wasn't there. So we ended up growing up in a lot of what people condition as, you know, inner city poverty. Something that really doesn't get talked about is poverty is something that can lead to a lot of mental illnesses. You're right. Because you're not, you're, you're always in survival mode. So after, you know, they just got involved, we went to go live with a family member and that family member did the, you know, they did a good job. You know, they raised us the way that we should have been raised. And something that I found out about my family is that there's a lot of mental health in my family from addiction to bipolar to schizophrenic. That thing is a really common theme in my family. And my mental health you know, journey really started when I was 13 because out of nowhere, I just got really, really depressed one day. And I'm talking about just didn't want to get out of bed, couldn't sleep, just didn't want to eat. And if I did eat, it was just to eat and nothing more. Mm-hmm. And I remember I went to my therapist's office one day when I was 14 and I just told him I don't want to live no more. And I tried to kill myself with a pair of rusty scissors and I ended up getting taken to the psychiatric hospital here in Philadelphia.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it really never went on beyond that. I never really considered myself to have a, you know a mental illness until I got older. And then the drug use started when I was like 14 I started smoking weed, then that turned into drinking and then that turned into just full blown addiction. Mm. And then fast forward to me as an adult now I can't function as an adult because I'm addicted to this, I'm addicted to that. I mean, I'm pretty much trying every drug that ain't nailed to the floor and every drug that's been invented and several that haven't been invented. And part of where my resilience came in was just this need to wanna get better, just this need to know that there's more to life than just what what people have told me. Like, you know, people are, quick to throw out a label like oh you're this you're that you're bipolar you're schizophrenic you're You're depressed you're this but i'm always been the person and this is something i carry with me today is that i'm not that that's what you think of me we never we talk about mental ish mental health but we never talk about the trauma that leads to the mental health exactly you know, and another part of my story was I was sexually assaulted three times.
0: Oh, no, I'm sorry. Wow.
1: So that played a lot into my depression because I started internalizing everything because as a Black man, who do you go to when you have an issue that, when you have a a mental hurt that you can't explain to people?
0: Exactly, right. Like
1: who do we like the question is who does not just black men but who do us as black people go to when we're when we're depressed when we're feeling lonely when we're feeling hurt when this thing that's happened to me has traumatized me and the only thing our family can say is oh pray about it oh we don't let nobody know oh whatever happens in this family stays in this family right and especially for black men who because we're always perceived as being the strong ones like even the strongest, even I always tell people, even Superman need a lowest lane.
0: Exactly, definitely. <laughs> wow. Phenomenal. Wow. It's so sad. It's true. Where do we go when we have our issues? It's really hard for us to kind of reach out to people because people are always expecting us to be these super, the super people that we can handle anything. And They just assume that we're resilient no matter what, you know, they don't give us that space to be able to be vulnerable at times. And that's kind of, it's, it's sad that other people are given that right, that ability to be vulnerable, to reach out, to talk to their family, to talk to whomever, but sometimes we don't get that same space. And that's a little unfortunate. So you went through all of this. So how did you fast forward? What did you, um, actually I'll ask another question. So what was it like growing up with a mental illness in your family? How did your family treat you knowing that you had a mental health challenge?
1: Um, I'll be honest in my family, it wasn't really talked about, right? It wasn't more of a sweeping under a rug. Like in my family, I always assumed that no one gets depressed. No one does. know commits suicide you know no one goes through this no one has this mental health issue so it was really never expressed you know i'll never forget the first time the first day not even the first day the first minute i got out of the psychiatric hospital as a teenager my aunt said you better not do this again or we're gonna leave you in there
0: oh my wow So
1: yeah so just imagine you know you're still trying to figure out how to navigate with this new bit of information that's been given to you and then that's what someone that loves you tells you mm-hmm. so in a way like you now it's like you're taking it in like it's your fault
0: it's almost like you're penalized for a sec for something like that like you're penalized yeah, it's like you get for... penalized for needing help right right it's sad
1: so ever since then we just never i never talked about it and then i honestly believe that that's where my mental health kind of started deteriorating because if I can't talk to my family about it, then and they don't want to hear it, then why should I talk to a stranger? What are they? What's the difference between them and a stranger?
0: Right, because at least with your family, so they love of them, you. <laughs>
1: yeah, and they don't want to talk about it, and so what is a stranger going to do for me?
0: Mhm. Mhm. Wow. Very true. Very true. It's sad. We yeah. as we really have to make more space, um, for our children and our family members to be able to be open because if we as a community are going to grow, we have to make that space and make that, that room available so that we can, cause in order for us to grow, we have to be vulnerable. And if we can't be vulnerable with the people we love, then who are going to be vulnerable with?
1: Right. Mm-hmm. And that's why there's so much, there's, that's, that's why there's so much separation when it comes to us and other groups of people.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: Because we don't give each other the grounds to be vulnerable. You know, when somebody brings to you, I've been hurt because, you know, you've done this to me. First thing we do is we want to get defensive. Like, yeah. oh, I did the best I could raising you. You know, it was about, you know, I made you stronger. I'm a seven year old kid. I don't want to be stronger. I want to serve. I want to be loved. I want to be respected. I want to be honored. I want to be affirmed. I don't want to be stronger. I'll be stronger as I get older.
0: Mm-hmm. Definitely. Definitely. So I have another question. So um, having a mental illness, how open were you actually, no, before I say that question. So what do you think it's like being a black man with a mental illness?
1: I'll, I'll give you some more background information. Yes, I'm a black gay man with a perceived mental illness. So you you tell oh, I already got one axe thrown at me for being a black black male and I got another axe thrown at me for being a black gay male. Now I got a, now I got a triple threat because now I got this going on. Right. I feel like on top of you know having received the diagnosis, I kind of took it in stride. I was like, okay, what else? There's nothing else that can happen to me beyond that. So Mm -hmm. I kind of just rolled with it. Wow. Like I'm very open about it. Like I'll tell people, yes, I was in the hospital 12, 15 times. Yes. I had 31 suicide attempts. My God. Like I don't really hide it from people because I want people to know, like that conversation we have could save a person's life.
0: You're right. That transparency is helpful.
1: Yeah. Some people need to see that there's something on the other side. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: You may feel low right now. You may be at your lowest point, but that's not going to be forever.
0: Right, right. Wow. So my next question to you is, What do you think it's like being in a relationship having a mental illness? Um, how open are you? How open can you be? Um, is it a for like yeah, you can just answer the way you think that you need to answer that question?
1: Well, I'll say this the devil's in the details. Mm. There's certain that you should tell your partner. Then there's certain things like uh yeah, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> it's not being secretive is not being deceptive it's more or on the lines of respecting that person and not expecting them to be your therapist or your psychiatrist. That's not what you're here for. Right. You know, sometimes, you know, we, I had to learn like you can't dump all your problems on one person. You know, mm-hmm. you got to give that person permission or grace to say, Hey, I got my own thing going on. I can't deal with that right now. mhm so I think sometimes in some cases less is more.
0: Okay. Okay. Cool. Cool. So my next question is, what did you have to do to overcome or bounce back from your lowest points? Um, list all the resources that applied to that, that
1: were helpful. Okay. How, okay. How I bounced back was one, I had to lose everything. Like, a place to stay, work, money, nothing. I lost everything. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And I had to really reset myself, which means I had to move from where I was to a different location to, I got tired of myself. And that's a bad place to get to when you get tired. I think that's the best place to get to in your life is when you get tired of you. Yes. You get tired of your actions. You get tired of your living habits. You get tired of your company. Or you get tired of just doing the same thing and obviously it's not working for you. And what I had to realize was I had to finally admit to myself, I needed help. Mm -hmm. And that was the biggest pill for me to swallow. Like I needed help. I can't do this by myself. And I say the most important things for me in this whole resource or this whole journey of regrouping myself was I had to start praying more.
0: Okay, so your faith.
1: It's like Lauren Hill said, how can you be, how can you be right for me when you're not right within? Right, right.
0: Wow, that's a good one. That's a good, deep one. Then I have another question for you. Um, so what are three things that you wish you had available to you when you were at your lowest point?
1: Um, access to therapists, access to more Useful resources and more relatability.
0: Okay. Okay. Cool. And my next question is: how does your faith affect your mental illness? Does it make you more doubtful? Or um how does it affect you? Um, the faith
1: that I have reminds me every day that you're not broken. And that's a stigma that a lot of people in society has put out, like the movies that they have about people with mental illnesses, make them out to be these monsters, and, you know, I tell people, the God I serve says, I'm not a monster, I made it his image after his likeness, I'm above and not beneath, I'm the head and not the tail. So me affirming myself that way every day allows me to rise above what society says about me.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. So my next question is, when they, when your faith community found out that you had a mental illness or if they found out, um, how were you received by them?
1: Very supportive. I mean, there was no change of anything. In fact, people, you know, applauded me for even sharing that information.
0: Mm -hmm. Wow.
1: That's amazing. So they never, I never felt shamed about it.
0: You never felt shame. That's good. Some communities, unfortunately, because of ignorance, they may not necessarily know how to, um, to, to deal with you because sometimes they demon. I find that sometimes some congregations or churches or communities demonize um, people with mental health challenges. Oh, that must be a demon. And, and they write you off. And, but that person doesn't get the help that they need.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. And that's a and that's a, a thing that the church kind of needs to get a hold of. And th- if they would just allow people to have that space to express that, I guarantee you, a lot of people, we wouldn't have as many problems as we do today.
0: That's so true. Very true. So my question is, what words of hope can you give to our listeners? What would you tell them?
1: My favorite thing is it gets better,
0: it gets better.
1: It looks, it looks hard now. It looks like there's no end in sight. You're going to fall. You're going to hit your lowest point, but it's going to get better.
0: Okay. Wow. I like that. I like that. So with that said, we are going to switch gears a little bit to another side of the, um, the interview where it's more about music therapy, because as you can see behind me, there is a book. And it's called the music of my life basically it's about my journey with mental health challenges as a woman with bipolar and um so my question to you is what type of music do you like
1: um i'm a contemporary jazz neo soul guy
0: okay all right all right so with that said if you were to think of one song that best describes your journey what would it be and why
1: Oh, um, what one that would describe my journey. Never would have made it by Marvin Sapp.
0: Ooh, yes. That's a beautiful song. I love that song. So deep. So that, yeah, it definitely, I can see why you would say that really touched you, but you know what I want to, and then before we end this, I actually want to kind of go back a little bit. You mentioned that you I, fr- I forgot to ask you these questions, but you did mention that you had almost, what, 31 suicide attempts? Yes. That is a lot. And between, like, yes, was that over the span of how many years? Um, what was the, when would was it? say the- about
1: four, it's a span over 14 years.
0: 14 years. Wow. Wow. And what, what are some of the things that caused you to get to that low point? Was, uh, was it just chemical? Did you find that um, medication helped? Um, therapy helped? What helped you to kind of bounce forward? And um, what, helped, what caused you to even go that far to even consider suicide?
1: Um, I honestly think it was a combination of drugs, alcohol, and it was medication. Okay. And mixing them all together
0: mm, I see, I see. and wow. it was the fact that
1: during that time i I really didn't talk uh, as much as as open as I am now, I never really talked about any mental or any traumatic experiences that I had. I really never got to the root of the issues.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: so I never had a chance to get it all out and just kind of heal and have the right I never had the right resources to know how to deal with the stuff that I've dealt with.
0: right. And how, and considering that people are a bit more open about mental health now, how, how can, what can we do to change the way people are perceived with mental health? What, what can we do?
1: One, it starts with education and I'm a teacher. So I believe that part of how we perceive mental illness is through education, Mm -hmm. you know, read 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 books go online look at youtube videos you know ask somebody you know hey if somebody's going through this and this looks like this what do i do Mm
0: -hmm. you
1: know a lot of the stuff that we do is based on assumption or is based on old outdated information that is no longer relevant
0: okay
1: okay we have to we have to as a people and just as society in general continue to educate ourselves
0: yes Definitely, definitely. Well, education is key. I mean, if we want to grow in this society, we definitely have to educate ourselves. That is definitely a great point. So with that said, um, how can we stay in touch with you? What are your social media handles?
1: Okay. You can look me up on Facebook. My name is Rakeem Jamal, R-A-K-E-E-M, Jamal, Mm -hmm. J-A-M-A-L. LinkedIn is just my name, my first and last name, Rakeem Coleman. Okay. And Instagram is teacher underscore student 92.
0: Okay. So I will make sure that that information gets put into your, into the bio so that if people want to get in contact with you, they can contact you that way. Okay. Awesome. So with that said, thank you very much, Rakim, for joining us here on Resilient Minds 365. I think it was a really, this was really informative and really helpful. And I'm really hoping that you're going to inspire somebody through your story. So with that said, and to all your resilient minds out there until next time, please subscribe to us on all our platforms and don't forget to rate the show and leave a review for us on Apple podcasts. Also join the community of resilient minds and sign up for our monthly newsletter at cleonicrawford.com. Be sure to grab a copy of the book of my book, the music of my life on all Amazon marketplaces to get to know me better. And if you can think of one person that will receive value from today's show or connect with Rakeem's testimonial, please share it with them. Feel free to take a screenshot of this week's episode of the podcast and tag us on Instagram. You can tag myself at Cleone, or resilientminds365 and today's guests at the... At what was your um, Instagram again? Teacher.
1: Underscore student 92.
0: Perfect. Teacher underscore student 92. And remember, mental health is not a death sentence. Despite your illness, you can strive, thrive, and live a life of abundance. Until next time, I'm Cleone Crawford, and I'm signing off.